Welcome everyone and welcome to this episode of the Towards Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to exploring wellness through a decolonial and a feminist intersectional feminist lens. Today with me I have two special guests um, that I can't wait to get into conversation with. And before I start I'd like to just ruminate on words written by Silo Mashibini on the book called Writing and Writing and Writing in which they talk about the university as a site of struggle and the site of struggle was afforded by many revolutions and activist uh, activist movements that came about particularly the 2015 and 2016 Rose Must Fall and Fees Must Fall movement in which we saw the university as a space in which there could be contestation of ideas the contestation contestation of space and the contestation of leadership so i really cannot sit here and not attribute a big part of being able to sit to sit here and run this podcast without paying homage to those um, protests but before we begin, uh, you know I like to play some games, and today's game will be thirty seconds. So how good are you guys at thirty seconds? No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible. But let's go. Let's try this out. Okay. We'll try. We will start with Nolo. Um, so Nolo, um, you can either choose blue card or the yellow card and then whatever's left will be down to Sharon. I'll go with the blue card. Okay, so <laughs> I will start the timer. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, let's go. Um, this is a music group. They sang Mamma Mia. Uh, the Beatles, I know I'm wrong. No, the name is a palindrome. Uh, it's a palindrome. Okay. It's four letters. Okay, okay. Also, Skip, next one. Okay. Um, sh- he was arrested because of Delilah. It's a Bible character. He had strength in his hair, I think. Yes, yes. I know him. I know him. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, this is a Spanish... Yes. <laughs> okay. We're out of time. We're out of time. <laughs> okay. So you got two, right? That's good. Those are good. That's good. I could not have gotten those. Are you ready, Jules? Yeah. Okay. So this is the yellow card. In three, two, one. Go. This is a famous British chef. He Hell's Kitchen. Um, shit, I know this guy. David Ramsey. Gordon Ramsey. There. Um, yeah. This is a city in Ireland. I think you, when you... The, how do you pronounce the collective name of, the, of products such as milk and cheese and... Dairy. Yes. Um, the frequency of... The unit of sound... Uh, there, um, she sang California Whoa. Girls <laughs> with Snoop Dogg. She sang with Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg does everything. Right? Time. <laughs> <laughs> so the last one was Katie bad. Perry. Katy Perry. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. This is the most random collaboration <laughs> ever. <laughs> I could I could have done better. 
We could have done better. Yeah, I, you you probably would have done better. I know I thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> and congratulations, Jules, for winning that round. Thank you, Sia. Awesome, awesome. As I said today, I have wonderful guests that I have had the opportunity to work with, actually, I think three years apart. And with me today, I have Dr. Nolo Modipane and soon-to-be Dr. Sharon Mukhale. Um, but instead of actually introducing them, I would like for them to introduce themselves and the work that they do, starting with you, Jules. Um, thank you so much, Sia. Um, so the reason why Sia calls, calls me Jules is because my first name is Juleka, um, but I prefer to use Sharon because that's the name my grandmother gave me and she's very special to me. Um, so yeah, I was, my name is Sharon Mukhale. I was raised by my grandparents in Broncos grades. I am a final year medical student and a student leader at UCT. Um, currently the SRC International Students Coordinator and yeah, I've also worked in, worked in multiple leadership structures at UCT, worked with SIA in the HSSC last year and also um, worked with SASCO UCT and house, house comms and mentorship programs at UCT. But who I really am, um, I consider myself to be a very um, Sort of reserved individual only kind of speak <laughs> when i'm mostly comfortable um i'm very passionate about social justice um i've kind of always found myself myself in situations where we're trying to solve some issue that someone is experiencing it's always just been like that since high school um just trying to help out people and that's probably why i fell into medicine anyway because i mean coming from where i come from this like minimal options of what you can really do um when you're smart it's either you go for the um you know engineering type degrees or medicine or accounting you know things like that and because i love to help people and um and i love engaging with people i thought okay i'll actually do great in medicine hmm. and so far i've really been enjoying it um i'm kind of finding my niche um in surgery um was skeptical about public health versus surgery, but leaning more towards surgery now. Um, yeah, I'm just happy to be here today. I'm looking forward to the rest of the conversation. Awesome, awesome. Welcome, welcome, Sharon. Um, and Nolo, uh, who is Nolo and what is the work that they do? Okay. Um, thank you for inviting me, Sia. Um, my full name is Nolo or Nolo Mudipani. And I am now obviously a doctor in my concert year. I am currently placed in a hospital in Limpopo. I'm actually originally from Limpopo, born and bred here, and I'm currently serving the same population that raised me. Amazing. But uh, Nolo as a student, was a student activist. I wouldn't say my scope of work was as broad as Sharon, which I'm impressed by, rather to her. Um, my initial involvement in um, the movements uh, pertaining to Rose Must Fall and Fees Must Fall and Black Consciousness and Decolonial work started in 2016, to be exact, uh, during the occupation uh, that took place at the Faculty of Health Sciences. I was then in fourth year medicine. 
And from there on, I was part of Occupy FHS, which was then a movement uh, dealing specifically with issues um, pertaining to academic uh, injustices and whatever inequalities and disparities that were there. Uh, and also, we had demands that were directed at obviously the financial issues that students of color were facing and actually with regards to um, uh, financial difficulties that most of the students faced it was we, we ended up representing more than just uh, students of color um, and then we moved from there to I worked in the oversight task team that was working towards um, the appointment of a student liaison advocacy uh, 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 structure and that I don't know if that came to fruition in the end, uh, but from my knowledge, not so much. But uh, my scope of work was really limited, although I was very passionate about all the projects I was uh, a part of. Um, and um, Nola as a person is a very vivacious, yeah, yeah. very strong-minded, very outspoken. Those who know me will call me a radical. <laughs> I represent that radical feminist, radical black conscious sister. That is who I am. And I am also definitely very passionate about any social injustices and correcting any forms of bigotry that people encounter on a daily, mm. uh, whether it is in uh, spaces of learning or in workspaces currently where I am. And that has always been a passion of mine, of course. Um, in terms of my career interests, I decided considering uh, how politically involved I am and um, how also passionate I am about social justice, I've decided to take the medical legal route, which I thought would be of great uh, help to most of our patients are very unaware of their health rights beyond what we tell them really um yeah so in a nutshell that's who i am sure um humbly says that this the scope of work is limited yet really has done such important work um in the faculty and beyond and how do you both in your work and the work that you've just defined and in your beings not just your work define wellness since this is towards wellness um i can go right <laughs> um I when i when i thought about the question of wellness we, we obviously kind of think about physical mental emotional and for me i think there's so many things that affect all of those um factors so it's kind of you know um it was difficult to define in terms of the work but when i <laughs> Obviously, just also hearing from Nolo right now, um, I'm more affirmed in saying that for me, um, in student activism, wellness being means being able to advocate for students without the fear of victimization, mm. and also having mm. enough space to breathe in such a way that new ideas about leadership and redefining leadership and service um, are able to thrive. There's so many times. Um, in an institution where there's no sense of wellness, where there's no institutional wellness, um, you as student leaders, we tend to struggle quite a lot 
with also redefining what we want leadership to look like. And for me, I felt I haven't been able to, um, you know, fully um, find myself in a state of balance where my personal life, school life, and student activism um, all sort of balanced when I'm unable to fully express how I feel, unable to fully represent students without, you know, that fear of, oh, someone's going to do something to me or someone's going to retaliate in such a way that, um, you know, um, affects the student's career negatively. And this year, I've had quite a lot of instances where, you know, you'd have a student um, who asks you for help like, to represent them on an academic issue, progression issue, and then go there. And um, and then all of a sudden, something else comes up, like, oh, now the student has been called to tribunal for plagiarism, uh, but they were submitting a thesis, trying to resubmit a thesis. And you kind of then get confused as to where all of this is coming from. So they there are very difficult hurdles um, that prevent wellness. Um, and for me, I think there's always student protests every year and there's always crises at ECT. But the biggest one for me is, you know, not having that freedom and space to exist in such a way that you're able to flourish as a leader mm. and victimization is quite a, a big of a big thing. And there's also that student from CPUT who obviously been expelled from university um, as a result of, you know, um, being victimized by the institution, which mm. led to a point of expulsion. And I think, you know, I, I, in, in my personal life, obviously, um, you know, I can define wellness, you know, with, you know, um, psychologically, psychological and, you know, physical and with school, you know, I'm able to cope and exist in a block where the consultants you know don't hate me and i'm enjoying doing my work mm. and i'm coping with the load of my schoolwork but within the work that i do with student activism um, the victimization that exists and has changed in such a way that it's now more subtle and more calculated um you know it makes it very difficult to um fully exist in that space for me i don't mind a crisis give us a crisis any day we'll deal with it yeah um, but yeah. as long as i can work with management that understands where i'm coming from as a student and also understanding that professional relationship that needs to exist um but when that's not there um i think that's when i've you know been shaken um you know quite a lot and it brings up quite a lot of you know issues as well and you know trusting yourself and making those ethical decisions um, mm. in what best serves the student or does it serve you because you don't want to be excluded or you don't want to be victimized, you know. So there's a lot of that that comes out in that space. And I feel like in as much, it's so layered and now, now that it's not happening as overtly as it used to happen before, at least specifically, um, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint and also highlight and, and also address um, so yeah, that's sort of how I can define all of this. Um, you, you, you captured me. I, I'm reminded as you were saying that entering to a space, be it a clinical space or wherever, and expect to flourish because you should be guided to that or the environment should be that. I'm reminded of a sad quote that I always um, rehash by Prof. Woodman, Prof. Zenda Woodman, who once said that she notices that students, black students in particular, actually come in with the expectation of failure. And now always it replays in my head because when you come in with an expectation of failure, how can you expect to flourish? 
and mm. so wellness is the uh, absence of that mindset and that's such a huge okay. systematic issue um nolo um would you yeah what's your definition of wellness how do you define wellness <laughs> Okay, look, I'm going to have to agree with Sharon that in the line of work that we find ourselves in where we embody uh, the philanthropist essentially and we put the well-being of others before our own, our our wellness is always compromised, you know, because we know that during uh, mass protests, if you are in in, in any leadership position, it is upon you to make sure that uh, the space is always as stable as it can be to make sure that people's uh, ideologies are captured people's Mm. needs are met and um, it's a very complex space to find yourself in where you do not end up losing one aspect of yourself or the other Mm. i remember it's either you are usually very taxed physically you are tired you're mentally exhausted you can barely uh, uh, touch a book you can barely study Uh, you are emotionally distressed because of concerns like uh, sharon already mentioned about victimization your wellness is almost always compromised and um I believe then this is where the idea, the the thought process towards a a, a free, conscientized black body comes in. Mm, Because mm. the freedom would come from mental uh, 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 emancipation. And to exactly what you said, when you already remove the barriers that you know exist, walking into a space and knowing, look, I'm already at a disadvantage for so many reasons, uh, but I can do this. You know, a very difficult barrier to overcome, really. So wellness for me is definitely the absence of that distress, that knowledge that I am essentially supposedly supposed to be destined to not succeed in what I am doing. Hmm. And um, saying, look, I know that my mental freedom matters the most in this space, in, in this case, because once you are, I know that emphasizing your mental emancipation would mean essentially not acknowledging the other aspects of your well-being, which mm. are your, like I already mentioned, your spiritual well-being, your mental, your physical well-being. But trust me, when the mind is free, you are in a totally different space. You can barely recognize all the other deficits and shortcomings, you know? So for me, wellness is being of strong mind, knowing that walking into a space, knowing that you are going to conquer. You you need to be self motivated enough to walk into that space and know that I have to come out of out on the other end having conquered because systems that are in place right now were stringently designed to. Uh, dissuade me to disenable me from being greatness from Mm. being the best from being excellence from being good you know so wellness is not easy to achieve in a utopia maybe 
we can i know that people actively work towards their illness wellness all the time you know on an individual scale i know that people exercise people meditate people i know i know people who take active measures to ensure that they're constantly in a state of what we call zen in a state of equilibrium in a state where they all their their parts and pockets of themselves are in harmony with each other Mm. but it's not always easy to achieve when you take on the role of essentially being people's advocate being people's leader you're always compromised because you are putting someone else's needs before your own sure sure powerful stuff um it reminds me of prof eliluani ramugondo's capturing off the term occupational consciousness where she states that it's this consciousness that one must have and one must frame within their lives as they move about to ensure that are they either resisting or perpetuating colonial script right um heavily paraphrased <laughs> but with nolo as well as i wanted to ask then how has the translation of this knowledge being to the world after your student lives? Like what does resistant look like beyond university? I mean, Sia, <laughs> we need to understand that by nature <clears throat> of being people of color in the practice of Western medicine, we are constantly bombarded with the fact that we are practicing a craft that does not belong to our ancestors, right? You know, a craft that belittles other forms of health sciences, especially indigenous knowledge of health, you know. Uh, and if anything, we are taught that our ways are, are, are of the detriment to our people. We, we associate anything that has to do with indigenous health with bad outcomes. We associated with the patient complicating, the patient coming in and then they'll feel, oh, wait, it's herbal intoxication. You know what I mean? Mm. So already walking into Western medicine as a person of color, you're already in an arena that does not acknowledge your own genius as a person and the genius of your people. So how, no matter how gifted you may be, at 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 what we do, you know. No matter, even if you are the best, even if you are a prof, myosi, you know what I mean. By adopting Western medicine as our career, we are in a way perpetuating colonial systems. Mm. So I I find myself always in a predicament where I have to constantly uh, uh, challenge the way I have been fine-tuned to think as a clinician, okay. you know, uh, having been trained by a Western system, you mm. know. When I see a gogo who is a person of color, uh, 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 sorry, who, when I see a black gogo, my bad, coming in, having gone through a traditional healer, saying, look, I, 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 it took me three months before I came here and the patient is jaundice or whatever, I always have to say to myself, look, I am aware that these complications are arising from certain mistakes that are made within our systems, but it's because we don't feature at all. There's absolutely no synchronization between Western medicine and indigenous medicine mm, at all, mm. you know? And I've decided that, and I, I think my passion now has become correcting those misconceptions that we have. And by correcting those misconceptions and trying to marry the two entities, 
I think we'll be moving towards uh, a, a place where we are challenging and decolonizing the spaces that we work in. It doesn't necessarily look like you constantly pointing out racism, constantly pointing out uh, hierarchical power struggles. Mm. It looks like you saying, my people existed as a people long before there was Western medicine in Africa, and they had systems that kept their health you know, intact. Mm. They were complete people. They had systems that advised them and that kept them healthy. But today we are here and we're saying, no, we're going to do away with everything they know. And everything they know is, in fact, the exact opposite of health. It's what is causing their death. And we need to challenge such uh, uh, mentalities and misconceptions. And I think that is my way of resisting uh, colonial powers. Because as it is, as, as I stand as a black woman practicing Western medicine, who am I to tell any white clinician or, or, or any white senior, of which majority of them are, are obviously Caucasian? What, 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 where is my voice in everything? Where, mm. When you are in a ward round and your job as a black student, I remember as a student, your job as a black student is literally just to translate for the clinician so that they have a better understanding, they, have a, they can communicate with Ish. their patients when when you're not in the picture who communicates with the patient you mm, know mm. the patient's health is compromised mm. and those are ways of resisting i we i used to voice out i used to say no if you need a black the black nurse the black uh, student to translate for you that means from the beginning from the point of entry of health for the patient the patient's health was compromised because you didn't know what you were accepting the patient for you didn't know what's going on with the patient mm. essentially and those are part of our ways of resisting these colonial powers and these colon fossilized colonial systems i know that um decolonial work is uh, uh, i mean I believe that it's, 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 it's long overdue, you know. By Definitely. the time we started talking about decolonial work, a lot of damage was already done. I wouldn't say, I don't want people to hear this and think that I'm saying that Western medicine, uh, uh, medicine is damaged. Yes, yes. It's damaged, sorry. Uh, I, I don't want people to think that I, I'm narrow-minded like that. No, <laughs> I'm not saying that. I am aware of all the amazing uh, 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 achievements uh, that and the strides that Western medicine has made in um, salvaging the health of our people. I am aware of that, being a medical doctor. Mm. But I'm saying that being a medical doctor who has been trained in a colonial system, I know that um, you, are, you are already downsized to a certain you know, you're already, you're already belittled. Before you even walk in, you belong in a certain place in the hierarchy. You may be the consultant, you may be the, but you already belong in a certain corner mm. because of who you are. But what are we doing to resist that? What are we doing to resist that? And I, I'm going to draw on examples like Abu Prof Murewa. I'm going to draw on examples of such clinicians because I've seen the active work and the resistance. Both Prof. Elolwani, they they embody the Pan Africanist, the 
black conscious uh, clinician who walks in fearlessly and dauntlessly with the mindset of a black man who's trying to free his black people, mm. who prioritizes the health of his people. Uh, when Dr. When Prof. Morewa would teach in pediatrics, he would always touch and on the history of medicine, like briefly, because he's, he, he specializes in infectious diseases, I believe. He'd always start and say, no, you know what, briefly let's start and acknowledge that much of the disease that is here does not originate from Africa because of this and that. And that was, on its own was resistance, you know. He could have gotten in a lot of trouble for doing that. Mm. But that was him resisting these colonial systems and creating awareness and... Uh, pushing the decolonial narrative. Um, yeah. Thank you, thank you. And I love how you, you speak on resistance on these many levels. For example, resistance from you just talking about not, not, ch- not, not shouting at your elderly patient for going first to a traditional healer. You speak upon resistance as why don't we question this issue of language within hospitals? Why does there have to be a student um, present in order to translate? And why is that student translating when it's their, their job? You also speak about resistance in actually the integration of the medicine now, as we know, as we are taught to actual the medicine that was kind of killed out um, due to coloniality because colonialism survives coloniality and colonialism is also found in medicine and you speak to about resistance on education so it's for me it speaks to these different forms of resistance that one can take outside of the institution whereas because in the institution things take form of in a different form where there can be a student protest but now in the real world inverted commas um, what does protest action look like? Um, so in, there has to be different forms of resistance and fine-tuning and protesting against um, coloniality as we know it. So Sharon, you were one of the panelists in a, in a June 16 talk where I asked a question around honesty. And I asked this question because the university finds itself producing decolonial work, anti-racist work and feminist work, etc., Whereas we continue to exist in this colonial, racist, patriarchal institution and with little repercussions for the perpetuation, for the perpetuators um, being human or also taking non-human form, or it's even where we find that institutions are now starting online private high schools, whereas they speak on decoloniality and how does that actually come together to the decolonial project. So I would like to ask this question to both of you as student leaders, um, former and present. So what is the importance of honesty in the work that institutions do? Because I find that I continue to ask this question because I find the production of this work um, in its beauty, but it's limited in its scope because it's produced in this medium that is very resistant to it and also kind of takes it back. So Sharon, um, why, how important is honesty in this work? Um, I think honesty is very important, especially when it comes to the process of reflecting on what your projects are meant to achieve or on what your policies are meant to achieve. <clears throat> 
Um, I think, you know, UCT has also like a, a tendency of, am I allowed to mention UCT? Yeah, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> UCT has a tendency of, there'll be like a, something that comes out in the media about a specific topic that relates to transformation. So there was something about bullying two years ago, if you remember, and then, then came out the anti-bullying policy. Mm. Um, and there was obviously um, unfortunate, um, you know, um, incident of Uinene. And after that came the sexual offenses policy. Um, and, you know, all of those things at face value, they, they they should be able to address all of our problems, you know. Um, but there's no deeper work that goes in to address the culture that exists within the institution. And that's because we also fail to be honest with ourselves in the reflection process of, okay, a year later, we mm. what mm. has changed, what is working? And is this policy just, you know, um, just a smokescreen or is it actually serving its purpose? And a lot of policies have also come out this year. Um, there's an anti-racism policy that came out and you know it just leaves you all just confused um because you're like i'm still experiencing um you know struggles in terms of that so i don't know how this policy is addressing this issue on a very basic level and that's kind of the conversation we we had earlier in the year in the trans in the institutional forum uh, when they brought forward these policies that in as much as you're trying to make sure that there's stringent rules and we're trying to have a survivor-centered approach to gender-based violence, addressing issues of gender-based violence in the university. But really, we're just putting, you know, a band-aid on a gaping wound. Mm, it's, not, mm. it's not work. The policy doesn't speak to the rape culture that exists within the institution. It doesn't, it doesn't seek to address that. And um, even now, they've established, you know, like some funding um to sort of bring in more psychologists into the university and i'm like i mean we can pour so much money into the system um try to you know fix it in terms of mental health as well they're hiring more psychologists you know it's all great but the system is you know um it's broken and you know um I almost referenced something i was not supposed to reference because it's confidential <laughs> in the meeting um but it's it's really very fragmented and you almost think, um, you remember like in the beginning of the year when the institution was burning and, um, you know, people said UCT must burn and I'm like, are you serious? Like, the there was honesty that in that would be okay with mm. UCT burning says a lot, you know, um, it says a lot about the space and all of that. And I think, um, um we need to start being honest on you know the why why in the first place did we have to come up with this policy um why in the first place do our students feel like they're not they don't belong in this institution and in addressing that you know we kind of need to also reflect on till today why is it that our students still have to practice medicine using test books where there's brown there's no brown skins mannequins don't have brown skin you know, it is because, you know, we haven't been able to have an honest conversation about the why um, of, you know, everything. Mm, and mm. it's just to say, okay, we've addressed 
this, we've come up with a policy um, to address this. But, you know, sometimes if you look deeper into these issues, you don't actually need a policy to address some of the issues that the institution faces. Um, meaning you don't actually need a policy to address some of those issues. Um, you just need, you know, people who are going to be able to answer the why. And a lot of times we haven't been able to do that. And when we have been able to do that, people have been silenced for speaking the truth. Hmm. Um, and yeah, that's the reality um, sometimes of, you know, um, being in academia, being a black person in academia, and um, as Nolo mentioned, being outspoken and wanting to change the status quo, um, it comes with a lot of um, challenges and risks. And for me, I think, you know, honesty, um, is it valued? Not not really. Um, is it appreciated? No, not really. Um, but it's very important for us to um, protect those individuals who speak truth um, to what's happening and genuinely want to see radical change within the institution. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I find it scary as you as you continue to talk. I find it scary because. We have so much um, work in terms of literature, in terms of video archives, in terms of policy, right? Yet we still find ourselves, just not the institution as a whole, the nation as a whole, very reactionary to things. Um, whereas we have this vast knowledge just from everything, the community in itself. Um, you, I'm even thinking outside of the institution, such as so the institution, which is the South African Police Service and how... They are driven by scop and donor, right? Instead of so many things that actually have been brought abroad to be like, no, this is how policing should work in South Africa. Um, just I count every other example of how everything is quite reactionary. So that speaks to how, number one, there's a lack of honesty in the work that we do, the fact that things are reactionary, and two, there's a lack of acknowledgement of the systemic issues that are actually causing the problem but we just put the band-aid over it um nola would you like to just touch on this question before we move on to our last one of the last um sentiments uh there's really not much to 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 add to what sharon said enough so we've we'll always find ourselves um uh in a situation where there is um a facade of progress, okay. you know. There's a there's there's an impression that there is progress when we very we all know very well that there isn't, and that obviously leads to a lot of stagnation, and it also it's very demoralizing, especially for the people who put their blood, sweat, and tears into the work, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, but I couldn't agree more. We know that honesty is is is, is paramount. It's Especially uh, in, in in the politics uh, of uh, academia, of everything, you know. Um, but considering how the power dynamics are, are, are standing, and the fact that we uh, have adopted a, a dictatorship of a system, um, I I don't know if it would be ever easy to. Uh, bring about transparency uh, by management structures. 
Mm. There's never transparency because the decisions are not for us to make. Whether or not we want certain changes, I remember we would uh, at, uh, during p- uh, protests there was um, work that was done towards ensuring that the mental health of students is you know uh, catered for. They would have um, apparently I don't know if that uh, the the the, the, the psychologist's office still stands. But it was inaccessible, and most people didn't feel like they were benefiting from such uh, 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 policies and programs. Yes. Mostly because they were uh, they were a way to pacify the masses. You know, if you give me a problem and I say, "Look, I solved it," and I give you a, a lucrative a lucrative evidence and feasible evidence that I have fixed the problem, it's very hard to. Uh, uh, negate that. It's very hard to come back and say, look, there's no progress. So it's a way of silencing the masses, if, if, if anything. Sure. Scary stuff, because I was actually sitting with a friend yesterday, and he was saying that he actually wants to travel outside of South Africa and live there for a while so that he can experience the fullness of humanity. For me, I was like, whoa, number one, one has to literally jump through so many hoops. You have to get a visa and all of that and all of that just to actually see when, uh, oh, the actual people that can exist in a certain way, you can walk at night, like something as simple as walking at night to that translating to experiencing a fullness of humanity. As a queer person, you can hold your lover's hand in the street as a form of experiencing a full form of humanity. Um, But you see how that in itself is tied to access, which is quite scary. And I really would like in the future for us to actually have conversations in which reimagine South Africa as it stands, reimagine our institutions But that's also a bit scary because within the imagination, where do we take that imagination? Because we've seen so many young people enter institutions, um, very hopeful, very starry-eyed and looking forward to changes in the future, only to be met with such harsh and such violent reactions from the systems that they're trying to change. So it's always trying to balance the two, which is quite scary. so Crispin uh, Chinguno, in um, pro, um, writing and writing, um, writes about the, the paradox of decolonization as they speak of how politics fail or are limited in moving beyond the national state, right? And this is then an unfortunate reaffirming of the colonial project. So Sharon, having worked with international students and international student policies um, during your term in SRC, what, from your experience, has been the best practice to ensure the idea and this idea of pan-Africanism and how we hope to see it play out within the decolonial project and so that it's not lost? Um, yeah, that is, a, that is quite a, um, a deep question because when we were reflecting on Bismarck's um, 4, I think it was one of the forums that I joined after and they were talking about how the international students at UCT kind of felt lost within that movement mm. and felt like they didn't have anything to gain at the end of that. Um, because till today, 
um, they still experience they still experience um, you know um, financial difficulties, and in as much as in as much as UCT has really provided you know for if gone you know above and beyond to provide financial assistance to students, even you know providing for the missing middle students, it, poor international students are still suffering quite a lot. Um, you know there is equal access to opportunity at UCT, we've seen that, especially in the Faculty of Health Sciences, um, we've seen how international researchers and um, um, postgrad scholars, how they flourish um, in our faculty. But behind all of that, there's a lot of um, policy issues which were very much highlighted by COVID-19 in last year. Some of them are way behind, way like, way above my pay class. Because I remember reading some of the email threads and I was like, my God, what is happening here? Hmm. But anyway, there's a lot of um, policies that are very xenophobic within um, our government. And they don't take into consideration how much intellectual contribution comes from international, that international students bring into South Africa and into their um, institution. Um, And I think a lot of international students also felt that, particularly, you know, African international students students because UCT prides itself of being the best in Africa. Yet when COVID hit, these students were abandoned. Um everyone must now look for the look out for themselves. People must now find ways um to go back home. Um people who are in the middle of their registrarships towards finishing, you know, your registrarship, now you must dump everything and go back home. So in terms of financial um assistance, we're definitely very much behind because a lot of our international students particularly undergraduate students are really um, struggling particularly those who are poor and the system it, it 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 the system has sort of in a way locked them out because even local sponsorships don't look at international students they mainly prioritize South African students which is fair considering i mean if you're a South African company you want to prioritize South African students but for me, what is what hits very hard is every time I see a poster and UCT has that continent image, uh, that African continent in it mm. and best number one in Africa, um, my heart breaks because I know that there are students who are from Africa, who are from poor African countries, who are here to uh, make something out of themselves, who are bringing intellectual contributions into this institute that is um, somehow sidelined them and also not looked after some of their, you know, most vulnerable points, which is, you know, finances. And with COVID, that has been very much amplified. Um, and I think another thing is also like our visa policies in this country, which I think are very much um, problematic because international students have to pay visa fees to come into South Africa, they have to pay medical aid fees, which are all quite necessary. Um, however, some of the administration fees that they have to pay, some of them pay, non static students pay more than 50% mm. more um, than the average UCT students. So their fees are higher, um, the administration fees are higher, the processes that they have to go to to even get into the institution um, you know, it's quite difficult. And this year it was totally horrible because they switched to an online system. Sure. Um, yeah, a lot of students only got access to their academic contents like six weeks into semester one, things like that. Um, and it was, you know, it's it, it really just highlights for me every time I see that banner that, you know, Africa, UCT Vision 2030, um, it 
it hurts quite a lot because I know um, in my inbox there are people who are saying, look, I can't, how am I going to pay for my studies? How mm. am I, you know, and mm. UCT, when they open up and they say, oh, there's financial aid, they only say, oh, South Africans only, but we're the best in Africa. So reflecting on that, hey, it's, it's quite hard to grapple with. Sure, sure. Um, that is quite sad, and I think it also speaks to a challenge that we have to have within us, right, within our politics, to actually ensure that they move beyond this nationalism, um, because so many people get left out um, within the nationalism um, that is saturating our politics, because you find that quite a lot of times um, immigrants we don't include within our politics and that's when it speaks mm-hmm. to us also just really questioning our politics as to have they been inclusive of people from different countries definitely um, that really really was um, quite heavy and because this conversation has been heavy in itself I really want us to to leave with some hope, um, some joy, some wellness, um, some redemption. And mm-hmm. there's a line I really love from Always Another Country, um, from by Sisong Gemsimang. This is actually the end of the prologue. And I was like, if you end your prologue like this, I am so excited for the book. Um, the quote goes, I've written this book because too few of us, women, refugees, South Africans, black people, queers, believe in our instincts enough to know that our hearts will be our saviors. And I would like to ask the two of you to really reflect on these statements and linking um, back to your answers on the definitions of wellness to to talk about your lives, um, your love, your hobbies, and any other forms of activities um, that redeem you and what this such a statement really means to you? What does it mean to know that our hearts will be our saviors? Being a black queer body and uh, a radical feminist, I, 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 I've come to the realization that um, we really only have ourselves to as, as our own saviors. I get that our hearts are our saviors, but we only have ourselves to, uh, we owe it to ourselves to walk this life and walk through this life having achieved everything that our heart desires mm. and that our, that will fulfill us, that will fulfill us spiritually, you know, that will give us the greatest satisfaction in, in, in all ways, in all forms. So, um, personally, speaking of hobbies, I, I'm, I'm into photography, and the reason that I discovered that photography is a, a, a favorite hobby of mine is because it, it felt like a diary mm. to me. It felt like a daily diary entry and journaling of whatever experiences I have in life and seeing the world differently and capturing moments that you know you could never relive. Um, and my 
my interest in photography are candid photography and raw photography and street photography because they speak to our daily societal dynamics and what's happening out there, you know, capturing what's happening to our people, what affects our people, what what are their lives on a daily, you know, mm. and um, hence I took to uh, photography. Um, Reading, of course, reading is always important, especially the African literature. It feeds you, it gives you hope, you know, it gives you perspective, it gives you insight, it, 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 um, it encourages you, you know, to continue walking through this life knowing that um, there's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of work to do to emancipate our people, you know, and um, there's a lot of knowledge to translate and relay down to the generations coming after us. I mean, I feel that we were cheated as a generation uh, of a lot of knowledge of our history. You know, we were cheated of a lot. I don't feel like the generations before us um, paved way for our entry into this world mm. in the sense that we are fighting the same uh, uh, um, we're fighting the same uh, injustices that we've been fighting. Our, our parents fought, sure. that their parents fought. You know, there seems to be very little shift. You know, and um, I think definitely reading and 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 enriching uh, 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 oneself like that, and remembering that look. Um, there's work to do. Mm. There's a lot of groundwork to do mm. to, to to save yourself, to save yourself as a black person, to save your people. Yeah, uh, definitely. When the heart is happy and um, the mind is healthy, and you, there's a sense of satisfaction in life, and there's um, there's a sense of there's a push, there's a drive towards achieving greater things. Sure. Yeah. That's powerful. That's powerful. Bettina and Jules. I think just for me, just to sort of summarize um, this conversation, I think, you know, wellness is, well, the definition of wellness is something that you sort of kind of work towards. And for me, is that is something that I'm actively trying to work towards as well um, in a world that's filled with so much. Um, you know, darkness and problems and, um, you know, um, us being left out, us not being part of the conversation. And even when we're part of the conversation, you know, it's just for um, optics. It's never for bringing about genuine change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you often feel like, you know, you've betrayed yourself or you've betrayed your people. So in attaining that um, sense of, I've finally, um, you know, reached a point where I can be confident that I've done work that'll help people, that'll help my people, that'll, that will advance um, other individuals who come from disadvantaged backgrounds like myself. Um, that is the kind of wellness that I'm working towards because um, I believe that, I, I don't believe in that selfish type of wellness where if you know, Shaz is okay, then I mean, everything's okay. I'm even mm. a um, a community type of wellness that if, you know, if I'm satisfied with my job, if, you know, I've, 
if I've achieved what I want to achieve, which is, um, you know, social justice, then I'll be, you know, well, if um, my family, you know, is looked after, then I'll be well. So it's a constant, you know, chase um, after that. And yeah, I think right now what I've kind of been um, enjoying doing is writing quite a lot. Mm. And I'm just grateful to have mentors as well, which is... <laughs> Um, taking the time to also guide me in that space. And I think I've always emphasized as well how important mentorship is um, because there's so many people who struggle through what struggle through. And I think a notable one is um, Dr. Dr. Gamfundisi, who is who's a black female neurosurgeon, um, studied at UCT as well. And just having conversations with that person kind of shows you how, oh my God, I can't believe they struggled through that in, you know, back in the day. And, and she'll be like, yep, we had the same things happening. Um, <laughs> it hasn't really much changed that much. Sure. And it's just important to also reflect um, by chatting to some people who've also just been through what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and yeah, I think having this conversation with Nolo and you has just kind of made me realize that, you know what, we still have a long way to go. And, yeah, things aren't changing, but we can only just keep fighting and pushing for the space to change. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Towards that wellness. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, towards that wellness indeed. Thank you so much um, for joining me today. I really, really enjoy this conversation. And sometimes you really feel down and you feel that things aren't really moving forward at a pace that you'd like them to move. But I think there's power in this collective of sharing these experiences and knowing that there are people who actually are interested in progressing society um, towards wellness.